0: Thank you, Natalie. You know, what I have discovered in walking with God these past 40 years, that at any point in time, my view of God is skewed. i see him work one way in one situation, then I expect him to do the same thing over here in this situation, and he does something completely different. You know, we come at life with kind of an expectation that God will do what He always does and will be what He's always been. But I've discovered that Uh, God wants to change our perception of how we come at life and how we come at Him. You see, God desires to burst our bubble when it comes to how we look at Him and look at life. And the tension you feel... Anticipating this balloon busting is similar to the tension that Jesus' followers must have felt as he went about popping their balloons. In fact, if you turn with me to uh, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. You can follow along on the screen if you'd like. He begins this way, beginning in verse 13, and then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. You know, there's something in all of us that resists change. I mean, we like to think that we're in control. Uh, we love uh, to find security in knowing that we have a plan and life works according to our plan. But the great danger is that uh, we can become so set in our ways, we begin resisting what God is doing. I mean We insist that God be what He's always been and do what He's always done. But what we know about God is as limited as the air in this balloon. You see, when Jesus came to this earth, He came to bring about an invasion of our lives, not leave us in isolation. In fact, you look back at verse 13 and notice it says Jesus went out again by the seashore. It seems that the shore was one of Jesus' favorite places to teach. But the lesson He's going to teach here is not going to come from what He says. It's going to come from what He does. And what he does here bursts everybody's balloon. Now, notice it begins with a personal invitation from Jesus. He's walking toward the shore, and he decides to invite one of the most vile, despicable people in all Capernaum to come along with him. A tax collector named Levi. Now, Levi's his given name. We know him better as Matthew. Now, we don't know why he changed his name, but we do know that when Jesus asked him to come with him, it would have stunned everybody. You see, tax collectors, they were hated in Jesus' day, especially ones like Levi, Jewish ones. The Roman government would farm out tax collecting to the highest bidder. And the man that won the bid would collect what Rome required and everything over and above that would line his own pockets. And he had the authority to collect taxes from just about anybody on anything and everything. I mean, there were excise taxes. uh, There were import taxes. uh, They had road use taxes, harbor fees, bridge tolls. Uh, There was even a tax on fish, which I'm sure made him quite popular with Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Now, a Jewish tax collector was really viewed as a traitor having sold out to Rome. I mean, they were considered worse than harlots, murderers, and thieves. You could just call them licensed robbers. They weren't even allowed to go into the synagogue. Their money was considered tainted, defiling anyone who did business with them. They were not even permitted to be a witness in a court of law because tax collectors were known as flagrant liars. Now, according to rabbinic tradition, a man in Levi's position, it was impossible for him to even repent. So Matthew, here in the text, he's an outcast with no hope beyond this life. I mean, he knew it, and so did Jesus. So you can imagine the gasps when Jesus stops by Matthew's tax table and looks him in the eye and says, I want you to follow me. Now, you need to know this is probably not the first time Matthew's seen Jesus. Now, it's unlikely that he would have followed him on a whim. He's probably seen him... Uh, teach. He's seen him do miracles. In fact, uh, I think his encounters with Jesus are beginning to burst his bubble with regard to how he thinks God sees him. I think Matthew in the text is starting to discover that God accepts him just the way he is, a vile, despicable, greedy man. Matthew's view of God is beginning to change. I wonder what it is about our view of God that needs to change. I wonder what bubble God needs to burst in your life. You need to also know that for Matthew to follow Jesus was quite significant. It was far more significant than for Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They were fishermen. A fisherman could always return to his fishing business. But a tax collector who quit was done for. Now, you walk away, and overnight, Rome was going to have somebody else in your place, guaranteed. So you need to know that when Matthew left his tax table to follow Jesus, he was leaving it all behind. But Matthew is not only beginning to see himself as God sees him, deeply loved and accepted. I'm starting to wonder if he's beginning to realize the temporary nature of what he was giving his life to. I, I think Matthew is beginning to discover there's a far greater investment to make. One greater than living for himself. You see, it's one thing to make a living, but Matthew's beginning to understand he wants to make a life. He's beginning to see the difference between what matters and what seems to matter. In fact, in the Jewish Talmud, which is a ancient... Hebrew commentary on the Old Testament. There's a story told of a fox outside a vineyard looking through the fence at the ripe grapes. He thinks to himself, I sure would like to eat some of those grapes. Uh, But the hole in the fence was too small for him to fit through. So the fox ponders his situation, decides to fast for three days. Now he's small enough to get through the hole. When he enters the vineyard, he feasts on the grapes. But now he's gained too much weight. He can't fit back through the hole, so he ponders his situation again. Decides to fast for three days. till he becomes small enough to fit through the hole to get to the outside. Isn't that the way it is with life? When we leave this life, we leave it all behind. And I think Matthew is starting to see that instead of investing in what he can't take with him, he wants to start investing in what he can when he leaves this life. Notice what he does next. Verse 15. Now it happened that as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples For there were many, and they followed him. So we learn that Matthew has sponsored a banquet. He ends up inviting all of his friends, their tax collectors. Notice he also invites sinners. Now, the the word sinner here, you need to know that refers to those who didn't follow the Pharisees' rules and regulations. So this is a banquet for the riffraff of Capernaum. I mean, a good Jew wouldn't be caught dead talking to these guys, let alone doing business with them, and for that matter, going to a dinner party with them? In fact, I'll never forget Sid Crosby. He was a friend of mine at Mississippi State University. And Sid had a winsome personality and an intoxicating walk with God and When a room opened up next door to him in the dorm, I decided I wanted to move in. And then another Christ follower moved in, another one, another one, and another one. And before long, over half the floor was Christ followers. And I'm thinking, this is great. Look at all these Christ followers. And then Sid did something none of us could have predicted. He packed all his stuff up and he moved out. He moved across the campus to another dorm, the wildest on campus. He and his roommate were the only Christ followers in the dorm. You said Sid, Sid wasn't interested in investing in his comfort like me. He wanted to invest in eternity by engaging the lives of those who didn't know Christ. In fact, it was Haddon Robinson who said this, Christians are like dumb. Pile it up and it stinks. But spread it around and it nourishes the world. Now, Sid understood that as a Christ follower, we were never meant to live in isolation away from those who don't know our Savior. And Matthew is starting to get the same kind of understanding. So, He sponsors a dinner party at his house, and he invites all his friends, but he also invites Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, it bursts everyone's bubble. Now, you also need to know the Pharisees did not receive an invitation to the dinner party. I mean, if they had, they wouldn't have come anyway. I mean, they wanted to live isolated from those who were different than them. Who didn't follow their guidelines. In fact, the Pharisees are probably thinking if Jesus is really the Messiah, He'd be throwing a dinner party for us. That's probably where their mindset is. So you got a picture. These guys are outside on the street and they're watching limo after limo just pull up. One guest after another getting out the who's who of despicable people in Capernaum. Look at verse 16. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Now, obviously, Jesus overheard their comments because he responds with an explanation in the next verse. And in doing so, he ends up putting the cookies on the lower shelf for the Pharisees. Verse 17 says, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says, guys, it's simple. This man's sick, this man's healthy. To which does a physician go? J- just like a physician goes to those who are physically sick, The Messiah must go to those who are spiritually sick. Now, now the Pharisees of all people should have understood that. Jesus is saying that all of mankind has been infected with a disease. And that disease is called sin. Now, I realize sin is not a very popular word these days. But do you know where the word comes from? It comes from the ancient archery competitions, where an archer would shoot at a target, and if he missed the bullseye, he missed by so many sins. So to hit the bullseye is actually to make a perfect shot. He would be described as sinless. So when the Bible says all has sinned, it's simply saying every one of us has missed the mark Of perfection. That's God's standard. And we've all missed the mark. Our disease is that we are far from perfect. In a Newsweek article that ran some time ago, it was reported that 76% 76 of the people in the U.S. thought that they would go to heaven when they die. However, the article went on to say that they were less optimistic about their friends. (laughs) You you see, we, we see clearly another person's imperfections. But you and I are blind to our own shortcomings, aren't we? That's right where the Pharisees are right now. So Jesus takes out His pen. Because he wants to pop their bubble. And notice how he does it. He says, I didn't come to call the righteous, better the self-righteous, but sinners, those who realize they are not perfect. You see, Jesus came to this earth for those who recognize their need for spiritual healing. In order to recognize their need for spiritual healing, God has got to burst our bubble with regard to how do we see ourselves Nobody is good enough to overcome their natural imperfections, their selfishness, their sin nature. I mean, you you could say that each of us possesses a well of human resources and talents, and we can operate on our own water supply for some time. But in every man's life, there comes a time When you let the pail down to the bottom of the well and you hear the bump on the dry bottom, what you do at that point is crucial. Now you can leave your pail at the bottom of the well and offer people a wishing well of dressed up illusions and facades. That's exactly what the Pharisees have done. Or you can bring your pail up empty and offer it to God, trusting He'll fill it with water. Jesus called it living water. And you do that just by saying, God, I, I know I'm far from perfect and there's nothing I can do that can earn my way to heaven. I trust You to give me what I can't Earn myself. You see, God accepts us just like He accepts Matthew in the story, as He is. But God loves us too much to leave us there. You see, Jesus came to bring about an invasion of our lives, not leave us in isolation. He wants us connected with Himself and with others. But secondly, Jesus came to bring about a feast in our lives, not a funeral. It seems that after the dinner party, the Pharisees end up confronting Jesus over another issue. This issue, of all things, is the issue of fasting. And so what Jesus says is going to burst another bubble. Look at verse 18. And John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast?" But your disciples don't. Now, you need to know that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they fasted a lot. Uh, The law required that to be a good Hebrew, you fasted once a year on the Day of Atonement. But tradition had kind of taken over, and the Pharisees said, that's not good enough. No, if you really want to obey God, if you want to be a good Hebrew then you've got to fast at least two times a week. They went as far as to name the days. It had to be on Monday and Thursday. And let me tell you, they made a show of it. They wanted everybody to know that they were fasting. I mean, they would look as glum as possible on those days and as pious at the same time. They were even known to lighten their face with fasting powder so that they would look pale. They wanted everybody to know what they were doing. They wanted everybody to see their sacrifice. By the way, that's why Jesus uh, said in Matthew 6, right there, uh, it says, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with sacrifice. A sad countenance, for they disfigured their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. So you got to use your sanctified imagination as you read this. I mean, just imagine in your mind what's going on. You got these pious, pale-faced Pharisees looking through the windows of Matthew's house, and they see Jesus in there. Laughing, High-fiving people. Having a great time drinking and having fun. So, they launch a question. Why, why do disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but yours don't? In other words, why are you deliberately ignoring our traditions? B- better said, why don't you make your disciples fast and be miserable like us? I mean, can you feel the tension in their voice? Do you anticipate a balloon getting ready to pop? So, how would you answer the Pharisees? I mean, Jesus was a master at answering these guys. Well, in the text, Jesus answers by using an example of a wedding feast of all things. Look at verse 19. And Jesus said to them, can the friends of a bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. I mean, Jesus is saying, guys, you don't understand the nature of this occasion. I mean, Jesus' day of wedding was a nonstop eating, drinking, partying, fun affair. And so he's saying that as long as the groom is at the wedding, as long as the Messiah is here, that life should be like a wedding banquet full of feasting, not fasting. Uh, But then in verse 20, he says, but the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they, meaning the disciples, will fast in those days. You need to know that phrase, taken away, uh, describes a violent removal. You see what Jesus is doing? He's pointing to His, His crucifixion here. He says, And that day, my disciples definitely will fast. But, but sorrow doesn't last forever. I mean, as we celebrated last week in Easter, there is a resurrection. The, the Messiah comes back to life. The bridegroom returns, and when the bridegroom returns, he won't return just to live with you. He'll return to live in you. In fact, if you're a Christ follower, Jesus Himself lives within us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He says, as long as I'm with you here in the present and when I come to live within you in the future, you need to know that life... Is to be a feast, not a funeral. Can you hear the balloons popping? What does that look like? What is Jesus describing here? Well, you you need to know that in Jesus' day, I mean, worship, it took place at the temple. God's presence was confined to the Holy of Holies, and not anyone could go in there. Only the high priest could go in. He only went in... One time a year, that's as much as he was permitted to go in. I mean, in Jesus' day, worship there at the temple, it was ritualistic, it was ceremonial, it was solemn. It was focused on sacrifice and silence. Now, Jesus says, I want to bring in a whole new era of a relationship with God. A whole new vital kind of relationship of warmth and vitality and intimacy with this bridegroom. And this kind of relationship can only be expressed with joy and gladness and celebration. I mean, worshiping God needs to be a celebration of the heart, the mind, and the will. Passive observation, that was the mode of the Pharisees. Engage participation in worship, that's the heart of the Christ follower. And so Jesus is saying life is to be a feast. It's not to be like a funeral. But the last thing he says will burst everyone's bubble. You see, Jesus came to introduce the new, not... Just patch the old and and frankly, that makes perfect sense that a fresh new relationship with God requires fresh expression, and Jesus decides to use two examples to communicate the direction he wants to take those who desire to engage with him from the heart. Notice the first has to do with patching garments verse twenty one uh, No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. Now, anyone who's ever washed a pair of blue jeans knows exactly what Jesus is talking about. You take an old pair of blue jeans that have got a hole in them and you try to put a patch over that hole of an unshrunken piece of jean material when they're washed, especially in hot water, That unshrunken patch will shrink, tearing the threads, holding it to the old garment, and making the whole worse than it was before. You can't match something old with something new. I mean, do you see what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees? He's saying, guys, you can't superimpose the new things God wants to do on the old hand-me-downs of your tradition. They won't match up. You'll end up ruining both. And then he turns to a more festive metaphor. He, he does that in verse 22. He says, and no one puts new wine on into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskin. The wine is spilt and the wineskin is ruined. But new wine must be put in new wineskins. Now, a wineskin was typically made uh, from goat skin, uh, where the skin was taken from the chest and neck of the goat and then folded over and the seam was sewn and it was sealed with some kind of tar. The neck of the goat was the mouth of the container and they would pour in fresh grape juice and then it would be sealed. And then fermentation would take place. The gases released would begin expanding the wineskin. That's why new wineskins had to be employed, because they were flexible enough to stretch with the increased pressure. You put new wine in old wine old wineskins, they don't flex, and so they end up popping just like a balloon. I mean, can you see what he's saying to the Pharisees here? He's saying, you're like those tired old wineskins. You can't contain God doing something fresh in your midst. You are bound up with your traditions. And so Jesus says, I am trying to introduce something new, something innovative, a fresh new way of relating to God. And I found God is... Always about introducing us to fresh and new ways of engaging with Him with our heart. In fact, about seven years ago, Patty and I were going through a difficult time and we decided to do something new, something we'd never done before. Oh, we'd done this periodically, but never on a consistent basis. Something simple, but it was new to us. And that was Pray together every night before going to bed. Now, it was awkward and odd. I mean, there's sometimes you really don't know what to pray. There are other times you're at odds with that person in bed next to you and you don't want to pray with them. That happens. But we decided we would press through and try this. And so there there were times that sometimes the prayer was simply a sentence, God, we don't know what to do, help us. Sometimes I had to start with an apology before we prayed. There were other times the words just flowed. And I was amazed at doing that one little new thing, how it changed our relationship with God, and an added bonus, how it changed our relationship with one another. In fact, engaging in relationship with your spouse and how to do that effectively is, is one of the things we'll be discussing in the marriage date night that's starting this next Tuesday night. Maybe God is pressing you to do a new thing. Maybe that's what He wants you to do. To be a part of. Just go online and sign up. In fact, I'm amazed at how many times God asks us to do something new. Something different. Did you know the psalmist commands us six different times to sing unto God a new song? Uh, Hebrews 10.20 says that the gospel is a new and living way. Now, 2 Corinthians tells us that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. God wants to give us a new heart when we come to know Him. A new name. He gives us a new nature. A new spirit He puts inside of us. He makes us a new creation. And in the end, ultimately, He wants to provide for us a new heaven and a new earth. God is always about Disturbing the status quo in order to bring in something new and different. So I wonder if the question is, what bubble does God want to burst right now in your life? I mean, what are you hanging on to that's preventing God from doing something new say, in your marriage or with your priorities or through your generosity. How willing are you to change? How open are you to taking a risk with God? Now, Perhaps the greatest risk is just going to God and saying, God, I am willing for you to burst my bubble in regard to how I relate to you and how I orchestrate my life. You see, God loves replacing the false security of the familiar <laughs> with fresh faith that trusts Him for the unknown, what is new. Father, thank you for this short story and the profound impact it can have on our lives if we look at you and say, I I trust You for the new You want to bring in my life. Burst any bubble that I have. May we leave here more deeply in tune to what You want to do in our lives and engage with You in the days that come to discover what new things You want to bring in us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for coming. If this is your first time here at Horizon, you have questions about what goes on here, I want to encourage you to drop by the hearth room. Third door on the left as you leave. And enjoy this wonderful day, and we'll see you back next week.